I'm just resting in awareness. I'm not trying to do anything. I'm not too preoccupied with it. The meditation object. Just resting in openness. And you start to intuit this kind of background, vibratory sound. There's no possibility calls the sound of silence. And you begin to rest with that. Sometimes you'll notice your heart chakra. Your heart chakra is very, very open because the mind is not caught up with ego things. Hearts are very open, receptive, not bound by the conditions of like and dislike. So there are different signs that sort of help you on the way. Um, and then the opposite, of course, is the the passion for, for life. Passion, I think, is a good word in, in contemporary uh, consumer culture. Passion is a good word. In Buddhism, don't go there. <laughs> don't believe it. So what to do? Well, passion can... You can see passion being something which is very, very powerful. Passion for the Dhamma, I suppose you could use it that way. But a passion for things which change will always lead to disappointment. And one of the things we try to use in Buddhist practice is the very, that the very nature of disappointment is one of those important signposts um, of, of transcendence. Because when I feel disappointed by a person, by an event, by my own performance in life, by what have you, when disappointment arises, then usually something unpleasant like disappointment stimulates in me the desire to get something else, to get some kind of compensation or to blame someone, to blame myself. But disappointment itself is a sankara. It's a conditioned thing. And in, in, uh, in the work world, if I feel disappointed by a junior person at work, then I have to say to them, you know, your performance isn't up to par. That's fine. That's on a worldly level. But in the in, in, our, in our understanding of the transcendent, disappointment itself, if you can bear witness to it as another thing that comes and goes, and you witness it coming, and you don't seek a compensation, you don't blame it, you don't try to get a review, you just know it, oh, there's the beautiful golden color of the maple, and then this cold sleet rain afterwards, then both are equal, in terms of the unconditioned, because they're both conditioned. So when disappointment arises and you have enough presence of mind to know, oh, disappointment has arisen, it feels this way, and you bear witness to it, what happens is desire arises. You have the desire to blame, um, or fix, or uh, run away, or distract. And on a worldly level, you have to do that. But on a spiritual level, you say, no, it's just the same. It's the same. Disappointment or inspiration, it's the same. It has the same value. That's kind of weird. I much prefer inspiration to disappointment. But if I always do, then I'm always caught in the condition. Because inspiration is a sankara. Inspiration depends on you know, causes, and it in turn... So when you... When people go on... We just had a retreat in Arnaprior, and people were very, very inspired. So, the ones that gave me good feedback. I only get the good feedback. Yeah. <laughs> the ones that weren't. I find out next year they don't <coughs> <laughs> But if someone feels inspired, and we've all had that, 
and you really think, okay, now I've got it. You know, I've got the path, I understand, because I think that inspiration is the goal. But it's not. Inspiration isn't the goal, because why? It's a sankara. It's, it's determined by a bunch of factors, and it in, turn, it in turn determines your sense of future. Got it, I figured it out, I'm on the path, I'm going to do this five hours a day, no doubt about it. And then a week later, right? I just watched four hours of television or something. <laughs> blown it. And... So inspiration itself is unsatisfactory. This is the strange thing about Buddhist language is that you're not saying that inspiration is bad. Inspiration is very inspiring. It can be very, very motivating. So it can be a very wholesome uh, factor in, in developing the path. But in itself, you can't rely on it. I can't rely on inspiration. I think we've all had that with teachers. Sometimes you I've been close to some very, very good teachers and for the most part I've been inspired, but sometimes I've been not interested, bored, um, and other things I won't mention. <laughs> but to, to then project onto my teacher when I feel bored or uninspired or, or whatever, and to project on them, oh, you didn't inspire me. You don't inspire me anymore. Is a classic case of delusion. Teacher says, "Well, I didn't come here to inspire you, mate. <laughs> it's not my job." <laughs> so, so we begin to see this movement of inspiration, disappointment, of, of beautiful blue skies, and sleet and rain, physical well-being, physical disease, uh, uh, closeness and intimacy with good friends alienation and um, argument with good friends. It's always going on, isn't it? So how to live in this world, and what's the point of it? Well, in, in a Buddhist sense, the method is, is to, to... The method, the point of our, of our life is the realization of this potential, and then to try to live from that potential in a way where we conserve each other, humanity, ourselves, because that potential is the end of ego, the end of selfishness. But to do that, we still need to use sankaras. We need to use determined, conditioned phenomena, such as meditation, such as a good social living, such as moral precepts, such as yoga, such as uh, a balanced diet, such as da-da-da-da-da, washing the dishes, and all of it. So we need to do all that. But that's not the goal of Buddhist practice. The goal of of a monastery isn't a harmonious community. That's not the goal. We do our best. Because a disharmonious community is even more difficult. We do our best. So the goal, but the goal isn't harmony. Although there's so much in the text about trying to cultivate harmony. But it's the method. And you can see how if we all, and we do, we do very well here, we all cooperate and work hard and, and there's a sense of uh, camaraderie in, in the Dharma, that really helps, it's uplifting. If we're all trying to steal each other's zafus every morning or something, or, <laughs> or grabbing all the cakes when no one else could have, and we're just in competition and resentment and gossiping and all that, it would be impossible, we wouldn't be here. Right? So, so the sankaras are important, they, the conditioned realm is important. The, the way we live is terribly important. 
but it's not an end in itself. And, and I know I've suffered from that in, in community where I, you know, where I think that the goal of community is, is harmony. And then when it's disharmonious, I think, well, I have to fix it. I have to fix everything and make it harm. I'm, I'm the second son in the family. That's my karma. Second son's dealer, I think. Got to make everyone happy. Got to, you know, make sure it's all harmonious. And I've done that sometimes. And people think, just leave me alone. <laughs> I'm just being grumpy. <laughs> so, so that, that the very sense of disharmony has is, been is very uncomfortable for me. But it's not wrong. It's just determined. It's something that's natural. And so then I get getting, getting a sense, oh, disharmony feels this way. Am I causing disharmony? Am I disruptive? Am I uncooperative? Am I rebellious? Am I just being a fool? All right, I have to address that. I have responsibility that way. But disharmony itself is not right or wrong. It's just another sankara, another conditioned thing. And so we find that. I think we all find that. There's certain kinds of social conditions where we feel terribly uncomfortable. And that discomfort is very important just to be with. So sometimes I find, less so now, but I'll find maybe there's some disagreement between the monks. Heaven forbid, right? <laughs> and some clash of personalities or uh, competition with resources. Or competition, not competition, but disagreement about resources or how to use our time, like any community. And then, rather than just let it be, be disharmonious for a while, I'll find I need to fix it. And that's attachment. So I fix it maybe, and kind of get it right, but then I feel compelled to do that each time, each time, each time. And that sense of the unconditioned gets lost in in the jungle of human relationships. Just this constant, like, oh, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to fix this. Whereas if I can abide in the stillness of the mind, and notice the emptiness of the mind, the silence of the mind, I abide in that. Then when disharmony comes up, I'll still feel it, and karmically I'll feel it a certain way. But then my response needn't be from just fixing that discomfort in myself, but rather say, what's appropriate here? Is there a problem? Do I really need to do anything? Because now my refuge is no longer harmony, my refuge is in the stillness which knows harmony and disharmony. And that's why this, as we say, Buddha knowing Dharma, or the stillness of the mind, is a refuge. You can rely on it. I can't rely on human relationships. I shouldn't be just dismissive of them, too. You know, just to kind of, well, it doesn't really matter, because it does matter. People do matter. Their hearts do matter. But if I'm coming from compassion and caring rather than wanting things to be a certain way, then, then the response will be fine. Be, you know, be, give the rest, best response I, I can in those situations. So the idea of refuge then, you know, what is, what is truly a refuge? What is really, really a refuge? And, then, and, and that awareness of change is a refuge. And it doesn't sound like a refuge, because usually we think an external thing is a refuge, but when you contemplate this, that that which has a nature to arise has a nature to cease, is unreliable, can't rely on it, don't grasp it, it's not mine. Um, you see that, well, what, what, what can I do? What can I rely upon? Well, well, there's always presence, isn't there? This is a curious thing. Even in my absent-mindedness, I'm always present. Even in my dangerism, there's always a sense of presence, there's always consciousness. 
And that we don't notice. So you know, the teacher saying, well, notice that. Notice that within the movement, there's the knowing of movement. And that, that begins to be, oh yeah, yeah, I can rely upon that. So there's some kind of disharmony, and I'm feeling uptight by that disharmony. And I say, yeah, but I can know this. I can feel this. This is an object. It goes through me. And the more I train in that, I begin to not get fooled by the need for harmony and say, it's all right, this harmony is fine. So going back to my suggestion, there's an election coming, I heard, and there will be a candidate that will <coughs> win or not lose or whatever, and, and that will affect each of us. You know, probably Dan won't be affected as much as he's, he's a good Brit, so he's affected more by the leader of the Labour Party or something like that. Um, but just to, to actually observe that, okay, that you read something and then that influences your heart and your mind jumps to it and creates a whole world. And we say this is the arising of the world. We say, you know, in the, in the teaching, we say the world arises and ceases in this fathom-long body in the, in the Victorian. How, how long is a fathom? Six foot or something? Six feet. Six feet, yeah. So the world arises in this five foot four body, or <laughs> arising and ceasing. And, and, and to actually do that is a very interesting experiment. You, you see the, 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 the piece on the CBC or something like that, and it comes into your mind. That's contact. And, and it's pleasure or unpleasure. So if it's displeasure, say, oh no, not again. <laughs> and that creates thought, creates future, what's going to happen. That's the world. That's the world arising, arising in consciousness. So the world arises and ceases. And what is, doesn't arise and ceases? Well, you know, the knowing, the awareness, the awareness of change. It's very subtle. The world is not subtle. So we say this teaching is for those who have just a bit of dust in their eyes. And it's true, isn't it? Because it's always there. It's always there, but we're so bamboozled by things, by sankharas, that we, uh, we get kind of caught up. So hence the need for meditation. Meditation is a very, very skillful way to come to that stillness. Um, but that, there's the stillness of just holding your mind to an object which is, is, isn't the same as noting the, noticing the background stillness. You can hold your mind onto a, a meditation object and just keep it... Um, uh, what's the word? Uh, the image I have is like a horse in a stall. And the horse is just there in the stall. It's not going to go anywhere. So it seems, it seems calm. But take your mind away from the object and well, it's all over the place. So the question comes up with some people as well: How can you? How can you notice the unconditioned if you're always looking at conditions? How can I notice the unconditioned if I'm always watching the breath? How can I notice the unconditioned if I'm looking at conditions? Say, so, so you use the meditation object to calm the mind, but then you you learn how to let go, and know the arising and ceasing of conditions, so that you begin to intuit the background stillness, the quietness. The, uh, the sound of silence, the sky, the page in the book, rather than just the uh, the letters, the black print. 
moment. I'll leave that for your reflection. What? Yeah, Paul. Yeah, I just I just got a question. Um, to try to deconstruct stillness. I mean, if, if it is kind of, in a sense, an object you know, that, that's that's there, is that the kind of an object that you're not allowed to notice? Because once you notice it, it's it's now a mental arising sort of thing. Well, what you what you look at is the very sense of subject object. And, and the doer, and the looker, and the definer, mm-hmm. and, and that, that, that object of a sense of a person, noticing an object, that falls away. And that's what we call emptiness. And that, we're in the emptiness. If and that's it. the emptiness, you're outside of it again, noticing the emptiness. Well, yes and no, but, but there is a sense that this is, this is peace. Uh, and and what it, what it, in that, well, you don't get any craving. So, so you know, the, the desire for an answer is craving, right? So when, when, when the mind falls into that, it does kind of fall into it, then, then there's a kind of... It's the end of desire. Yeah, you can't be looking around stillness. Like, mm-hmm. But can you ask the question, what's available in stillness, like um, peace and love and things like that? You don't tend to because it's, it has no desire in it, no need. It's, it's just there. It's just peace there, Peace yeah. and love is there. yeah. And, and the very sense of, of needing to do something about it has fallen away because there's no person there. That's right. It's just yeah. that. It's just that. And then, and then what happens is really that the engagement with life comes from spontaneity and, and uh, openness and, and availability. But that's very um, indeterminate because you don't know what's going to happen in life. But the response is, they're very pure because there isn't uh, any craving, ego craving around that. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very kind of beautiful way to live. It's like walking through the forest and being caught up in the beautiful things in the forest. And then when you notice how beautiful it is, you're no longer in that anymore. Yeah, yeah, you make a comment. Yeah, yeah it's kind of secondary. You pulled yourself back and you said, how beautiful. Then you a picture. Yeah, <laughs> build a kuti. <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah we, we, I think one of our, our big challenges as Westerners, maybe everyone in the world, but we're always needing to make comment, define, analyze, uh, um, figure out, um, do something about it rather than just have this kind of trusting heart. Yeah. Simple thing like that. Well, what else is there to do? <laughs> Shall we finish with any other questions for anyone? Or? We're good. And no question. Just you, very you look quasi quasi quizzical. No, I'm thinking that how do you come up with these different talks when we're done all the time? It's the coffee. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> <laughs>